Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs 27, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. In order to explain this proverb, we need to nail down the definitions. I think we all know what open rebuke is. It is confrontation. It is calling out sin. But what does it mean to carefully conceal love? This is the sort of thing that happens often in families or other close-knit communities where we neglect to hold someone accountable. We love them, but we fail to stop them from hurting themselves or others by committing offenses against God or other people. Different factors that come into, come into play here. And different root motivations might cause us to hide our love. One of those is idolatry. This is the sort of thing where we put the loved one before our love for God. In other words, we idolize them. And in our opinion, they can do no wrong, or every wrong they might do has a justifiable cause. One form of this is when parents are overprotective and under-exacting of their children. It looks like sheltering children from hard consequences when wisdom says the child probably needs to learn and even experience these very same consequences. Another thing that conceals love is bad doctrine, teaching, or learned habits. Rather than speaking the truth in love, some people think that the Christian thing to do is always to turn the other cheek. They may have grown up in a family that never addressed problems, or they may have been taught a truncated gospel. Ultimately, they believe that love is sentimental. It's defined by soft and warm feelings, and certainly does not hold its ground or confront. This is bad teaching. It's bad doctrine. Love requires truth, and false love ultimately brings pain and suffering. Another false way of thinking is a failure to grasp our own worth. We can twist the doctrine of total depravity, the fact that we are all born sinners, into a thinking that somehow we deserve to suffer. In this case, we fail to rebuke because of insecurity. The answer is the gospel. We don't deserve to be mistreated. God loves us. He chose us from before the foundation of the world. He sent His Son to die for us. What greater value could He bestow upon us? Another reason that may cause us to conceal our love for another person is fear. What are we afraid of? We fear what we don't know. We are afraid that we are not seeing clearly and that confrontation might be unjust. We fear that there might be consequences of uh, confrontation and things might get worse. Being governed by fear can certainly cause us to carefully conceal our love and affections. But God wants us to live not in fear, but in strength, standing firm on His promises 
that he will not leave us or forsake us. The final root cause for hiding love, which I plan to address this morning, is simple laziness. Sometimes we don't confront sin because it's work. It's work to rebuke. It's work to invest in one another. It's easier to let sleeping dogs lie. It's easier to ignore the problem and hope it goes away. It's easier, but it's not love. Love is proactive. Love cares enough to do something about problems. Love embraces truth and refuses to let go of it. Love worships God and makes Him and His standards our hearts and souls highest good. And perfect love casts out fear. This kind of love is sanctifying love. It is love that changes us into the likeness of our Lord and makes us holy. It gives us the courage to stand up and bear witness that God is in heaven and he holds us all accountable. Therefore, we must humble ourselves before him, confessing our sins and crying out for the mercy of his gospel. If you're willing and able, please me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the grace that you pour out upon us. We ask that your name would be glorified as we hear your word taught and proclaimed. We pray that you would sanctify and consecrate us. We pray that you would prepare us for your service. That you would fill us with faith. That you will illuminate to us what it is that we believe. And help us to understand how you minister to us. Father, we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday, I introduced this new series that we're having on the Apostles' Creed. And we covered its history and its origins. And today we're going to start to discuss its content. And we're going to get really far. We're going to get two words into it. I believe. The Apostles' Creed starts with the words, I believe. In Greek, the words for, or the word for I believe is pistevo or pistuo, which means to believe, to have faith in, to place trust in, or to have confidence in. Pistevo. Its root is also the root for the words pistis and pisteos meaning faith, belief, or trust, or faithfulness and trustworthiness. Faith is the starting point of our religion. But faith is not a simple topic. In fact, it's difficult to talk about faith. It's difficult to talk about faith because talking about faith is a little bit like looking at your eyeball. You see everything through your eyes. But try looking at your own eyeball. It's kind of difficult. And the same thing is true with faith. Faith is foundational to our religion. As such, faith is, is, is it, it's what, it's the eyes through which we see everything else. It's the lens through, through which we look through. 
but it itself is invisible. It's hard to identify. But being foundational to it, to our religion, this is the subject of our message this morning. In the West, in Western civilization, in the West, we live in an age of what seems like increasing antagonism, antagonism against our faith. Because on the broad scale, our culture is turning away from Christ and faithfulness to Him. So it seems to us like we are encountering, encountering greater and greater opposition to our faith. Our faith is under fire in the public square, and it has been for quite some time. The intelligentsia of the secular world want to describe our faith as blind. They want to call us fools for having faith, blind faith. The noted atheist Richard Dawkins calls it belief without evidence, a process of active non-thinking. That's, that's what Richard Dawkins calls faith. Belief without evidence, a process of active non-thinking. Another atheist, Peter Boghossian, says that faith is pretending to know something you don't know. Since we don't know, we'll just pretend like we know it. That's the West. In the East, besides this secularism, we have competing faiths, which have sought to marginalize or destroy our faith. Marxism and secular statism in China and Russia. Islam in Northern Africa and the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. Hinduism and Islam in India. Shintoism in Japan and Buddhism throughout much of Asia. We have these competing faiths, competing answers to the problems of life. They, they're competing faiths that want to marginalize Christianity. They want to see Christianity decline and they want to see their own faith expand. Even to the point of persecution and murder. But despite all of this hostility against our faith, whether secular or pagan, the Christian faith remains the most populous faith in the world, with about a third, a full third of the world's population claiming that Jesus Christ is their Lord. It is the most populous faith in the world. It is also the most evenly distributed faith in the world. Many of these other competing religions, they're very localized. They're localized in a region or an area. Christianity is worldwide, evenly distributed. And according to one study, Christianity is the majority religion in 157 countries. More than any other, any other religion. So now that I've given you all of these faith statistics... Let's dive into what faith is all about. We believe. But let's take some time now to discover what belief is in the first place and how it works. Now we're going to start with the Heidelberg Catechism question 21. Because it's convenient that our doctrine has a question that is specifically geared towards this question. What is true faith? 
The Heidelberg answers. True faith is not only a sure knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. It's kind of a race there. There's a lot of information packed into that answer, and we're going to be expounding certain elements of that answer. So one of the problems with reviewing this topic as, as a topic for a message is that because faith is the lens through which we see everything, it's everywhere. It's, 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 it's dotted throughout scripture. It's, it's uh, evidence. The evidence for it is, is spread evenly through the scripture. And so for that reason, we're going to be jumping around to a number of different uh, proof texts to justify the catechism's answer here. So the first thing we, we hear from the catechism is that true faith is a sure knowledge. Faith is intellectual assent. Faith is an affirmation that what God has revealed to us in his word is true. That's what it is. It's knowledge that we know is true because God has opened our eyes and our hearts to its truth. This means that faith, in contrast to what Dawkins and, and Bokassian would have us believe, is rational based on evidence. It's not folly. It's not, it's not sticking our head in the sand. Faith is rational based on evidence. And the primary place we go to see this is John chapter 20, the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus gives us a story, John gives us a story about doubting Thomas. Thomas doubted the resurrection. Starting at verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He says, I have to see it, I have to touch it, I have to feel it in order to believe this. This is, this is amazing news. The resurrection is amazing news. And I will not believe unless I see and touch, is what Thomas tells us. He needs evidence. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Evidence. We have evidence and we have witnesses. That's why we believe. And 
especially, John tells us immediately after this story of doubting Thomas, that the reason he wrote these things down is so that we would have the evidence that we need to believe. Verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We're invited to believe. We're invited to, to grasp and assent to the truth of the story of the scriptures. So that's the first thing we see in our answer to the catechism. Second is that faith is a hearty trust. It's not only a sure knowledge. It's not only a, an understanding of what God has revealed to our hearts. But it's trusting that truth. It's a hearty trust. It's reliance. It's confidence. It's security. And again, this is throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures we see this. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the Epistles. For now we're going to content ourselves with just one short verse. From Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. We, we can rest in our faith. Because our faith gives us that peace. So where does this faith, where does this hearty trust, where does this sure knowledge come from? What's its source? First of all, we see that it's a gift of God. A hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel. It's a, it's a gift of God. And here we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting at verse 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any should, anyone should boast. God gives to us the faith by which we are saved. God gives that to us. We don't earn it. It's not, a, it's not something that we have merited. No, it's not a choice that we make on our own. It is a gift from God. And that gift is specifically the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that God works in our heart. True saving faith is something that God does. And he genuinely, kindly, generously pours out upon us. He gives us this faith so that we understand. He reveals himself to us so that we assent to 
the truth of what he's revealed in the scriptures. And we can rest in that truth. We can trust it. Finally, God uses means. Faith comes, it's a gift of God. It's a gift from the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. But God uses means. It comes by hearing. We see this in Romans chapter 10. Now then shall they call on him in whom, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. God gave us his word. He he chooses men out and he sends men out to preach. And when we hear his word, the Holy Spirit gives that seed life. It's the parable of the sower. The Holy Spirit gives that seed. That word sprouts in our hearts. The truth of the gospel seizes control of our souls and our spirit. And it births life. It comes alive. And that is a gift from God. In which we now assent to God's truth and we rest in it. The next thing we learn after intellectual assent hearty trust and where it comes from, we learn that our faith is both corporate and personal. The the answer of the catechism says it's not only to others, but also to me. I believe is what we say when we read the Apostles' Creed. The corporate is assumed. If If you've heard this, you've assented to it, okay, we grant, okay, there are people out there that believe. But, Faith is about applying that faith to you personally, to me personally, to every one of us, children, wives, husbands. We are all chosen to be God's people. And this personal needs, this personal aspect of it needs some justification because sometimes we doubt, sometimes we struggle, sometimes we're like Thomas. But Paul models this for us in Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, Paul's giving a defense of, uh, uh, he's giving a confession of his own faith and a defense of his ministry against the Judaizers in Galatia. And he says this, listen to how personal Paul's faith is for him. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, that every one of us would imitate Paul in this faith. This personal faith that says, Jesus is my Lord, and I live for him, and he lives in me. So our faith is corporate and personal, and next, it's effective. God's gift of faith. It works salvation. It accomplishes salvation. Galatians 2 verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith. 
in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So God gives us this faith. And this faith saves us. It covers our sin. It unites us to our Lord. If He's my Lord. If I'm buried in baptism with Him. Then I'm raised to new life with Him. I am genuinely taken away from the devil and the world. And I'm given a new body. A new person. A new life. I'm a new Adam. I'm in Christ. That's my identity. And in in Christ we know the Lord. We know peace. We know salvation. Now the answer in the text dives into more details and defines the gospel. And I'm not going there today. But we'll get into that later in the creed. For now, we have a working definition of faith. It's a sure knowledge. It's a hearty trust from God, and it belongs to us corporately and individually, and it's effective for our salvation. That's our working knowledge of what is true faith. Now, what does it matter? Why are we talking about the science of salvation? Is that not what we're talking about? Why are we talking about The lens through which we see. In order to talk about that, we needed to discuss why it's difficult. Why is it difficult to talk about faith? Why is it difficult for us to wrap our heads around faith? One of the reasons it's difficult for us is because we can't see what we believe in. We can hear the promises of the gospel... We can read what the, the, the Bible reveals to us in Scripture. But our faith is, is things not seen. It's things in the future. It's a belief in things that are heavenly, spiritual. We, we believe in a future reward. It's for the joy that is set before us that we endure. We're, we're called to imitate Jesus. We're called to imitate Paul. Who suffered? It didn't look like they were experiencing the blessing of God much of the time. Our text this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 38 through 11, verse 1. Let's turn there. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. After these verses, the author of Hebrews, St. Paul, goes on to give us stories from the scriptures. He says, faith is something we don't see. And then he tells us all these stories about the heroes of faith. And those stories are written so that we might know God and believe on him. And serve him with deep conviction. So we read stories from the past. So that we might believe what God has for us in the present and in the future. So that we might change who we are. But in this, faith is a lens through which we see. But as our perspective changes. As we move from unbelief to belief. From not faith to faith, our behavior changes. 
What we see affects how we behave, what we do. Once we see these truths that God reveals to us in His Scripture, we can't fail but notice them. We, we, in fact, we start to point them out. We become witnesses. That's what being a Christian is, is to bear witness of God and what He's doing in the world. Uh, for a metaphor, it, it's like... Uh, you're standing on the side of the road. You're a pedestrian walking alongside the road. And you see a child in the roadway. What do you do? Well, you flag down the speeding car. You say, whoa, this is dangerous. Stop. Stop what you're doing. Save the life. That's, that's what it is. When God gives us the eyes to see the gospel, the fact that he's a loving God rescuing people from the jaws of death and eternal torment in hell. He invites us to go out and stop the car. To, to share with the world the danger that they, are, that they are living in. Knowledge and faith are powerful and effective. That lens that God gives us, that gift to see changes our actions. It draws things into focus. We see things we couldn't see before, and then because our actions are changed, the fruit of that faith is evident. The fruit of that faith is evident in our actions. We're justified by that faith because we start becoming faithful. We start acting Differently, We are united to Christ and His redemption. And we see the, the destruction and the, the wickedness that sin promotes. So what do we do? We confess our sins. Instead of arrogance and pride, where we're always pursuing our own ends and doing our own thing and, and have our blinders on to what God is doing in the world, God's opened our eyes and we start seeing how He works through love, through sacrifice, through grace. So faith works. And that's in large part the message of the book of James. Faith has to be evident. Belief matters because belief drives action. And we are all judged on the base of our actions. On the base of our words. The things that we say. The things that we do. That's on the basis upon which we are judged. But faith changes those. So first thing. Faith matters because... God gives us the ability to see what reality is. And and that changes how we behave. Further, faith matters because faith is a dividing line. Faith is a dividing line. Notice how Paul put it in our text this morning. He draws a line in the sand. He says, the just shall live by faith, but those who draw back do not give pleasure to God. The just shall live by faith, those who draw back do not give pleasure to God. We are not those who draw back to perdition. We are those who believe to the saving of the soul. Faith is the dividing line. It separates the sheep from the goats. In this 
we are justified in, in, in identifying both those who are, in, are our enemies because we believe, the atheist. They hate us because we believe. They think we're fools because we believe. They, they think we are idiots because we believe. So we're justified in identifying them because they are on one side of the line. They do not have saving faith. And we're justified in identifying our enemies because of what we believe. So those who don't like us because we believe at all or because we believe something different than what they believe in. Other religions, pagan religions. Now the dividing line is between those who are just and right before the true God of heaven and those who are running from him to perdition. That is the dividing line. That is the great division that God created into the world between the new Adam and the old Adam. So it is good and right for us to see and identify our people. It is good and right for us to defend our faith from the attacks of our enemies and gods. God calls us to stay the course. To declare God's victory and gospel to a dead and dying world. This is Psalm 2, verse 12. We sang it this morning. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Kiss the son, put your trust in him. That's blessing. And then the warning of what comes if you don't. This is Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And Jesus told them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. We must fight the good fight. We must stay the course. We must be witnesses of what God is doing and what God does. Who He is. To the secularists we point out that God is creator and author of all things. And that he has revealed himself in his creation. And he rules heaven and earth. And he will judge men for their sin and for their arrogance. This is not mindless or primitive. This is not active non-thinking. This is wisdom and it's based on evidence. And the power of God's Holy Spirit. To the pagan. We declare Jesus' victory over all principalities and powers, over the devils and over death itself, that God has shown to you and to me, to us, a better way to worship Him and to draw near to Him in hope. And that no matter what they throw at us, terrorism, persecution, or even death, Jesus is Lord and He will judge. And finally, to each other, we encourage one another in the faith. We confess what we believe. We confess that God is working in our lives. And then we go out and we bear witness with our love for one another. And the grace of God that he bestows upon us in community. Because our faith, our trust is always in Christ. 
It's into something. It's in God. Our faith is in the God of heaven who made all things and who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And he is the true God. And we know this because Jesus told us this as he prayed in John chapter 17. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God is real and faith in him matters. Is Jesus his son? Yes. Believe it and confess it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you've revealed the mechanism by which we believe. You've taught us about faith. You've taught us about who you are. You've given to us knowledge and assurance that you are God and that you've redeemed us from our sin. You grant us forgiveness of sins on, on the basis of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. You assure us by the working of your Holy Spirit that you are God and that you are effectively working out your salvation throughout the world to the ends of the earth. You've called us to faithfulness, to belief, to trusting in you, and to being witnesses for you. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with this faith. We we ask that you would fill us with faithfulness so that as we go out from here, your love may abound in us and through us for one another and for the world. Christians and we do believe. We believe in the God of the Bible and we confess this every week. We believe in his son, our Lord, who died and was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. And we believe that these promises are ours. They are for us and for every believer who truly looks to God in faith for salvation. In this belief, we are set free from the power of our enemies. In this faith, we know the true God and embrace His goodness and declare His gospel. In this, we accept His grace and humility and repentance, receiving all good things from His gracious hand. He is God, and He loves His people, who you are. So take, eat, and drink, rejoicing in your salvation. This table is for you who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body of the church. We confess His name when we eat and drink this bread and wine, and we acknowledge that we are sinners without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Christ's body, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.